Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We'll start with a short Dhamma meditation session and then head on into Q&A session. So at this point, at any point during the first part, if you want to post questions or messages in chat, feel free. Say hello. If you want to just sit back, what I recommend, just sit back and close your eyes, listen and practice mindfulness. If you have questions, you can post them. We have volunteers, Jim and Wulu are organizing the questions. Chris will do the job of asking them when we get to the second part. In the first part, I'll talk a little bit about today, talk about danger. So one of the definitions sort of an adapted definition of the word bhikkhu means one who sees bhaya bhayangi katiti bhikkhu samsare bhayangi katiti one who sees the danger, the bhaya in samsara called the bhikkhu Buddhism has the appearance of focusing on the negative things like suffering and danger it's not entirely true there's a lot of good things to focus on in buddhism but to some extent there's a sense that we are negligent asleep and complacent and there needs to be some waking up paying attention to the bad things. But unlike suffering, danger is... Danger is more just a warning, right? When we talk about danger, it doesn't have to be a paranoia-inducing topic. In fact, it can be quite a reassuring topic to be able to know what the dangers are and be prepared for them and avoid those things that are dangerous be aware of those things that cause suffering so the Buddha's teaching on danger we have a stock set of dangers three sets actually Three sets of four, a total of 12 dangers, make a really good sort of survey of well, Buddhism, but specifically those dangers that exist. The first four are the dangers of samsara. These are general, generic danger. Everybody has to face these. There's no escaping them. There's no escaping them as long as we're stuck in samsara. I mean, we're all going to be faced with at least some of them. And if we're not careful, most likely, we're not really, really ardent and dedicated. We're most likely going to face all four of them. These are simply old age, sickness, death, and rebirth. We all have to face these things. These are dangers that are on the road ahead for us. And you can call them dangers as opposed to, say, suffering. Because they don't have to be unpleasant. Cause us unpleasantness. They can cause us suffering. If we're not mindful if we're not ready for them. 
So getting old, getting old has some really great things to it. I mean, old age, the plus side of it is you gain experience. And um, you, you gain some basic uh, qualification in the sense of having an established seniority. You can't fake old age, right? can pretend to be a, a, a an accomplished you can pretend to be accomplished in many different things you can't you can't pretend old age if you're not old you're not old you can't fake it you can't just buy it it's established you've you've walked the mile you've done your time old age isn't something you can replace so a an, an person who is senior, an older person, gets more respect, and rightly so, to some extent. It's not, of course, the biggest factor in whether you should respect someone, but it is a factor. I mean, not obviously just because you've lived longer, but because through living comes experience, and all, all other things being equal. I don't know that you can find anyone who hasn't learned, hasn't gained some knowledge and you might say wisdom, at least in a worldly sense, through growing old. But old age is a scary thing, dangerous, because there's lots of breakdown of the body, breakdown of the faculties. Your eyes get worse, your ears get worse. The systems in your body, the digestive system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, your skin gets wrinkled, your teeth get broke, your hair turns gray and falls out, your back gets crooked, your legs get crooked. All of this is, is not, not any of it is really stressful, but can be, of course, incredibly stressful if we're not ready for it. It's part of why mindfulness is so important. Sickness, the second one. Sickness is dangerous. You don't actually have to suffer from sickness, but find the person who doesn't suffer from it, and they're a rare, rare individual. Sickness can be a great catalyst for enlightenment, because if you're very sick, it's hard to hold on. It's hard to cling. You might crave, of course, to be free from sickness, but sickness, because it's un unavoidable, unescapable, if someone is attacking you, you can run away from them. If there's an unpleasant situation external, you can find ways to change that. But when you're sick in the body, it's very hard. And quite often you're unable, especially with real chronic old age sickness, arthritis, heart failure. You can't escape it. Cancer. No matter what... Uh, cures they find for sickness we're still going to have to face them more and more as we get old death of course is a danger death is an incredible danger it doesn't have to be suffering yet not only is it suffering but it's a scary thing scary to have to leave and to head off into the unknown and if we're not mindful at the moment of death well, we've got rebirth, and not only being reborn, which can be pleasant, you can be reborn in heaven or in the Brahma-loka. But rebirth is... Rebirth is, of course, a great danger because if you die with a with a corrupt mind, you're likely to be in grave danger of suffering.
there's the first set, the second set of dangers is dangers for those who engage in unwholesome acts, who gave, who, those with corrupt minds. So we have the, the next two sets are those are dangers for evildoers and dangers for good doers, good deed doers, practitioners, people who follow the Dhamma. The dangers for those who don't follow the Dhamma, four of them. The first is punishment. If you do bad things, you get punished for it. Other people will punish you. You might get put in jail. You might be attacked. You'll most likely be uh, treated differently by others, treated poorly by others. Excuse me. Punishment. Not only punishment, but other people will say bad things about you. You will be blamed for it, censured for evil. Anyone who knows anything about goodness and evil will censure you. You'll find yourself making friends only with people who are unreliable untrustworthy, who have bad, malicious intentions, who are manipulative, good people, honest people, kind people, people who are helpful and supportive will not want to have anything to do with you. Others will censure you. Number three, you'll censure yourself. One of the worst things about evildoers is they feel guilty and they berate themselves they gain a great amount of self-hatred. Uh, reminding themselves when they're alone of their bad deeds. This is a danger, a reason not to engage in corrupt acts. Number four. Well, number four is the another sort of punishment, the more absolute punishment, and this is the future suffering. You'll be reborn in hell, you'll be reborn as an animal, and reborn as a ghost. For full of anger and do deeds out of anger, cruel, hard, harmful deeds. Be born in heaven for greedy, lustful, and do deeds harming others, stealing or manipulating others to get what we want. You'll be born as a ghost. And if we're just deluded, arrogant, conceited, stubborn, obstinate, and so on, born as an animal. The dangers for those who do evil. And the third group is the dangers for those who do good. Those of us who are intent on doing good things, bettering ourselves, who come here to these groups to practice, and to cultivate wholesome actions, speech, and thought. Well, we, we have dangers that we have to be aware of as well. And these are these dangers are the, where the Buddha likened a person practicing the Dhamma to one going on a voyage at sea, trying to cross the flood.
The first thing a person trying to cross the ocean of samsara has to worry about is the waves. The waves when the ocean is not calm. And the waves are another are are a metaphor for anger, irritation, irritability, boredom. where we become averse to practice, we become averse to teachings, we become averse to advice from our teachers, where we have anger and self-righteousness or wrong views that lead us to think we can just, or we shouldn't be torturing ourselves by walking back and forth and sitting still and putting up with bad things. We don't want to put up with them. We're angry and annoyed and irritated. I mean, of course, any new meditator has to deal with these things. And it's just one of the important things to be aware of because it's what causes us to lose our way. And we can't be mindful of it when we're unable to catch it. The second danger is crocodiles, the word, crocodiles, alligators, I don't know. Crocodiles and alligators, this, this is uh, laziness, complacency. Crocodiles have a big mouth, so this is the person who is... Uh, just likes to eat and sleep like a crocodile this a meditator has to be aware of this this is why learning about wary of this this is why learning about the dangers is useful it reminds us that we can't be complacent we can't just let ourselves go we have a reason for practicing until we become strong and fully formed as a human being as a being, fully formed in the spiritual sense, so that our faculties are mature. Well, we have to work at that. We can't be lazy and just eating and sleeping and doing nothing. Of course, talking about when we're in a meditation course or as a monastic, in a monastic setting, you don't have to work. Your work is in the Dhamma, so it's easy to become lazy, complacent. The third danger is sharks. Sharks are sexuality. There's lust for sexuality. So specifically people who might drag you down like a shark, grab you, bite you and never let go. It's easy to lose sight. This is a monastic, this is especially for a monastic who might be become entangled with a, a non-monastic. Maybe people coming to the monastery or meditation center. But it can happen to meditators as well at a meditation center. Becoming enamored with someone else and losing track of their practice, losing sight of their practice in favor of this exciting, new, potentially satisfying part of samsara that's somehow going to uh, buck the trend of being unsatisfying. So we easily become caught up in that. A shark or someone who is dedicated to meditation, getting lost and sidetracked in romances, a danger. And the fourth is whirlpools. Yes, the ocean has whirlpools that can drag a ship down. Samsara has whirlpools that drag a meditator down and send us around in circles. And this refers to sensuality, not just sexuality or romance, but sensuality. This is attraction to sights and sounds and smells and tastes. 
attraction to entertainment and beauty and beautification and so on. Things that not only send us around in circles, but drag us down as well. One, one sort of more profound example of this is the sensuality of meditation, where you see lights, colors, pictures, or feel blissful feelings. Sometimes the body experiences pleasant feelings, sometimes in the mind, calm or peaceful or happy feelings. This is all still sensuality. It's all still objects that we can cling to. Maybe not, sorry, not exactly sensuality in, in a worldly sense, but still objects of clinging. And they don't lead us anywhere. They don't seem to be harmful, but they block our practice. They send us around in circles. And because during that time we're not being mindful, they can drag us down and cause us to lose our way if we're not mindful of them. So there you go, the 12 dangers. It's a brief Dhamma talk for today. Things for us to be aware of, keep in mind when we practice. I see there are quite a few questions, so I'm going to move right into the question and answer period now. If anyone has questions about dangers or questions about other things, we're looking specifically for questions related to meditation practice. But we might entertain other questions as well. Okay, let's begin. After noting sitting, often there is still time before the rising. Would sitting, waiting, rising, falling be okay? Should I elongate waiting as a physical observation of the stillness of the stomach? I mean, you can. I wouldn't make a habit of it or turn it into a real practice. You don't have to say anything, you can just wait or just say sitting a couple more times if necessary, but wouldn't make a habit of it, just if it really takes a long time. If you have correctly noted seeing, seeing, can craving arise after that, or can it only arise if your mindfulness wasn't on point? So it's not magic like you can somehow correctly note. But if noting has come to the point where it triggers states of mindfulness or it evokes states of mindfulness, then no, there won't be craving arising after that. But it's not about you being you correctly noting. It's more about the mind being disposed in that in that direction through repeated noting. So don't think that you can somehow do it right or wrong or that you have to make sure you're doing it right. You just have to be patient and let the mind learn. And, you know, you're just directing the mind in the right direction. Is there a point when noting and neither evading nor approaching, i.e. knee pain, become too dangerous for medical reasons or for sake of self-preservation? Yeah, avoiding is, is a part of the practice. You avoid things that are going to be harmful like injuries so you have to be aware of your body's limits and if you think you're going to go beyond them just switch your postures that's all do it mindfully but part of wise practice is it's one of those things that surrounds our practice it's a practice that surrounds our mindfulness practice if you read the sabhasava sutta it's a good source i often do talks on the sabhasava sutta um it, it has these sorts of practices around our practice. Things like avoiding dangerous things. In my meditation, I am tormented by the thought that I have a great responsibility to help other beings in samsara to be happy. But can I rather focus on myself with a good conscience? You can do whatever you want. So let's start with that. You can do whatever you want. There's no God or Buddha telling you what you have to do. You can do whatever you want. And if you do good if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. So that being said, the state of being tormented about a thought, because a thought can't torment you. Thoughts are just thoughts. Be clear about that. But being tormented by the thought 
and and giving rise repeatedly and habitually to torment has no benefit to you or others. It's harmful to yourself and it's harmful to others. So you're not actually benefiting from that torment. So you'd be better if you let go of that. That's where I would direct your attention in this regard. It will help you and it'll help others. You don't have to have any kind of idea of focusing on yourself or focusing on others. You just... But one thing you have to understand is how important quality of your mind is in order to help yourself and help others. So without cultivation of mental development, you're no use to anyone. It's an important point to keep in mind for those who think they should be helping others. Don't just do something, sit there. I get mad and irritated over little things all the time. Then I feel guilty meditating. Why is this happening? Habit. Just habit. There is no actual reason. I can't give you a why, and I don't need to give you a why. It's not really important. But I can't give you one because there isn't really a good reason. I mean, I could go back to the causes, but it's much more complicated than anything I could simplify. Your causes are your causes, and they're not actually interesting. They're just messy and it has no value to know them the only value is to understand that it's useless to to get angry and irritated which you don't realize yet or which is not clear to you if it was clear it just wouldn't happen so by noting them by observing them repeatedly the familiarity changes to your perspective and your mind is less inclined towards them that's all it's happening if you want a simple answer it's happening because of delusion ignorance ignorance and delusion. Those are the root causes. So through clarity, familiarity, wisdom about those things, just seeing them clearly as they are, they'll just disappear on their own. I have broken my step into three distinct motions, but my brain has become so used to my walking mantra that I have increasing periods of wandering without noting while repeating the mantra. Any advice? I don't know if you split it into three parts on your own, but that's sort of the sort of thing we do in a course, so you might be interested. But during the at-home course, well then, I don't think you are, because you wouldn't probably need the... We can go through some of those more advanced exercises. I mean, basically the answer to your question is take on more advanced exercises, but we don't want to do that without some sort of rigor and, and structure to make, you know, some accountability to make sure you're on the right path. Because uh, advancement in technique uh, pushes you further and, and it accelerates your, your, your advancement. But if you're headed in the wrong direction, it's going to accelerate your advancement in the wrong direction. So there has to be some, it's not scary, but there is some level of care needs to be taken. So we don't like publish those those advanced, I mean, there's nothing special about them or ma magical about them. They're just more complex and advanced techniques because we just don't want people getting the idea of going off and doing them on their own. That's just kind of irresponsible. You need some accountability. So you could take a course and learn it. I often deal with deep sadness. I meditate every day, and often meditation difficult. I try not to have attachments and desires, but the sadness won't go away. Any suggestions of what to do? Well, meditation is always going to be challenging. Part of the reason, it's part of the... And to let, let us see things that we wouldn't normally face. And it can be a challenge. So you just know it's sad and sad. Trying not to have attachment and desires is not really the practice. Just try and see your attachment and desires clearly. That's how they go away. Not by trying not to have them. It's not magical. that You don't have this magical power to make them go away. power to make it go away. I mean, even the fact that you're seeing that is an important part of insight. That's starting to see what we call non-self. That's clearly a part of the practice. So I don't know if you're practicing art. 
technique, but it might help you go further. No longer try to force or control things or have expectations, which would then lead you to get sad because you're okay understanding that you're not you're not able to control your universe. You let go instead. When meditating in nature, I note that I enjoy the natural beauty around me. Is that permissible, or do I simply note it as thinking? Liking is an important one. It's one of the five hindrances. I am beginning to witness the arising and ceasing of phenomena far faster than I can actually note it. Should I simply be aware of the phenomena or continue to note it? Well, if you're witnessing that, just say knowing, knowing, but don't note fast. Try and come back again to the main exercise of watching the stomach rise and fall. I've been meditating for years, thinking I've been loosening my attachments, but after a betrayal by a loved one, I saw that I hadn't. I'm in so much pain I can't stand it. My wanting is so strong. How do I overcome this? Well, it doesn't mean you didn't gain anything. It just probably means you didn't gain as much as you thought, which is a common thing. We have over uh, overestimation of our progress because when things are good or things are easy, it appears like everything, like your mind is is sane. But then when things are challenging and uh, undesirable, you see you're still pretty insane. Doesn't mean you didn't gain anything. Don't be discouraged like that. But, um, you know, you, you, you can stand it. You just have to gain the tools by which to stand the pain at least in little doses. So just try and note pain, pain, or sad, I guess. Wanting, if you want, wanting. It's not going to make it less painful, it's just going to help you let go of it, because you'll see how painful it is to cling. You're just going to show yourself how painful it is, and you'll start to let go, because the pain only comes from clinging. You're not in pain if you don't cling, so show yourself again and again, and just reiterate to yourself the pain. When you see it clearly enough, your mind will let go. There's no question. It's not magic. It's not mysterious. Your patience is what you really need because you're dealing with hard, hard emotions. Don't have high expectations. Just be patient. And cutting it like an axe. My teacher said, when, when you're cutting down a tree, you cut with an axe. You don't cut in one swipe. You have to chip away at it. In sitting meditation, should we strive to sit in the full lotus position? I worked up to half a lotus. Is there a benefit to doing the full lotus? No, in Vipassana there's really no benefit. Um, it's a very small benefit, but mostly it's a benefit for things like samatha meditation, where your mind is very still, very focused, and you don't have to deal with the constant changes in the body and so on, or the hindrances. You're not wrestling with impermanent suffering and non-self. So you're you're able to still the body along with the mind. It's very good for samatha meditation. Not so good for vipassana meditation. It just causes a lot of pain usually. Half lotus is good for the people who are flexible, but mostly we recommend Burmese, one leg in front of the other. I mean, it's called Burmese because the people in our tradition were always doing it, I think. In Buddha's previous incarnation, he gave his life to save a lioness and her cubs. What is your take on this, and how does it fit into avoiding danger? Uh, let me think about that one. I'm not sure that that's an orthodox Jataka tale. 
but um, the, the the bodhisattva the bodhisattva was intent on giving up his life for anyone who asked. I don't think he did it for the mother wanting to feed her cubs. Um, but I think he did that sort of thing for human beings. He sacrificed. I'm thinking now whether he sacrificed his life ever. Why do I think he did? He must have, right? I don't think so, though. I think the thing is, sacrificing your life is is trying to think. Well, as a as a deer, he did, but he didn't end up dying from it. I don't think the way that that Jataka describes the Bodhisattva as throwing himself off a ledge to feed a hungry lioness and her cubs. Uh, but I don't think it's about avoiding danger. It's just that it's not the best use of his life, right? So much better he can do than feeding animals, even if it means they die, because the animal world is so unstable anyway and fraught with um, unwholesomeness that you really don't get a lot of headway by trying to help animals. Um, and and if he's a human being, I mean, think of how much good he could do in his life. It just it doesn't seem all that noble, even though it sounds noble and it sounds like what a sacrifice. And because we like to think of a mother cub and and being able to feed her her, her cubs and and a mother sorry a mother lion being able to feed her cubs and how sad it is that she can't, but. I'm not. I don't, I'm not convinced that he would have done that. Anyway, I don't. The Jatakas are. I mean, they're stories, and and it's hard to say that all of them are really accurate. So, I wouldn't try to read too much into them. They're great stories, and the ones that are orthodox are. Some of them are just incredible work. Uh, of literature and and with allegory with uh, morals. And. They give a sense of the way a Buddhist person might live, or Buddhist people might live, and a Buddhist thoughts on how to live. But there's a lot of stuff in them that's also a little bit superfluous. But remember, it wasn't a Buddha who did that, so it's not something you can take as right practice. It's a pra I mean, it, maybe not it, but practices sort of like that, where practices of self-sacrifice are to become a Buddha, where you have to be able to give up everything. I don't know that he would actually give up his life. Still trying to think of an example of one of the Jatakas. I've read all of them at one point. 547. Six volumes in English. Um, I don't remember any. I assume there must have been, but I can't remember any where he actually gave up his life for something. He tried to seems to me there must have been an occasion, but I can't think of one. If I think of it, I'll come back to it. But I don't think that is one of the actual Jatakas. I mean, there are extra Jatakas from other traditions that we're not sure are actually considered orthodox, real. Is it killing or otherwise inadvisable to take a shower if you're unsure whether or not it might be drowning drain gnats or fruit flies that you know are dwelling in or at least around the drain? No, you don't have to be concerned with the potential of killing. I mean, being careful is useful, is helpful, is wholesome, but it's not considered killing unless you know there's a being there and you intend to kill them or you do something, intend to do something knowing that it will kill them. Or, or let's say, being reasonably sure that it can, it will kill them. But the potential that something might die—it's like if you don't, I can't drive a car because it, it might, or even probably, you could say, will kill some insects. But that's a part of samsara. Death is not a problem. Your intention is not to kill, and you, you're just doing something that you know is conflicting with those other beings. I mean, it's it's awful to have insects die in your, when you're driving the car, but it's not killing. It's the kind of thing, these are the gray areas where it, it involves consideration, being considerate. But being considerate to insects is 
not that big of a deal. They live so short and their lives are so meaningless anyway that it's not uh, something you have to be that considerate of. Of course, when it comes to actually killing, we don't even, we don't kill insects because killing is killing. But being considerate, we don't really worry about being that considerate to animals when we can, of course. Try to, but it shouldn't be high on your list of priorities. There's just not much meaning in it. Can meditation just be summarized as watching your mind? Because when I sit and meditate, I just watch my mind, whether it's thought or emotions or anything. Meditation can't be summarized as anything. I mean, you could summarize it as a mental uh, development. Uh, I mean, sustained mental development, but that's as far as you can go, because what does it mean? What does meditation mean? Ask a thousand people, you'll get a thousand different answers. There's as many types of meditation as there are ways to think, ways to develop your mind. Some of them are wholesome, some of them are unwholesome. Some are better than others, more more valuable than others. Some go further than others. But if you ask me, well, I teach a certain type of meditation, and if you're interested in learning that type of meditation, we have a booklet on how to meditate, so I'd recommend maybe reading that booklet. If you're interested in really learning it, you could take a course on how to meditate. How do we remove ourselves from our own way? Sometimes internal states can hinder or become dangerous to ourselves. I don't hear that's too too vague, I think. I'm not sure I can really help you with that question. I think I would recommend again just to practice if you haven't read our booklet, read our booklet. If you're interested, you could do an at-home course. Because in general I think the answer is practice mindfulness. I'm not sure how to know that I'm clearly seeing my attachments. I struggle to not control them or want them to go away. How do we know we are seeing clearly? Well, you struggling to not control them is another another noticing how you control because you're you're using control to not control, you see. So you just have to see that you're controlling them. The struggle that you have is the stress and suffering from trying to control. Trying to not control. Trying to not control is another form of control. Using mindfulness is, the, is so special because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do any of that. It's, there's no trying involved. You're, you're purposefully inhibiting your inclination to try. Purposefully. That's the goal. That's the point. So if you feel the struggle, no struggling or, or tense or disliking or frustrated or so on, if you have doubt, which it sounds like you do say doubting, because that's a real thing. So just note that. You're just noting tangible real things, mental and physical. And that's how you see clearly. You're already seeing. You're seeing how you struggle. Being able to describe it to me means you're seeing. And that's more clearly than perhaps you saw before, because you're noticing what happens when you try, and when you try it doesn't work, and so I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but you're actually doing something right, because you're seeing that it's not under your control. Sometimes when I meditate... Sorry, just about that one last point is just be patient. Sometimes when I meditate, I find myself in a state in which I don't know whether I am aware or not. Sometimes there is nothing to be aware of. Is it okay to have such states? We're not we're not a, taking a practice of judging our state, so don't worry about that. We're just trying to note them. So if there's if you feel uh, there's nothing, you can say nothing or or quiet. You feel calm, you can say calm. If you just know that there's nothing, say knowing. If you're not really conscious, then you'll have to do something when you come back because during that time, if you really can't be mindful, well then there's nothing you can you can do. So just when you come back, you can say knowing, knowing that you were in that state, and just move on. If you're, if you're 
don't know, then there can be doubt, so you can be sure to note doubting or unsure. When people punish us in a way that is against the Buddhist values, are we to accept their wrongdoing as our punishment? So we don't accept things as punishment per se, we try to see things clearly. And when you see things clearly, the answers will come to you, how you should respond will come to you. I mean, it's, again, this is talking about age. I mean, experience is going to make you better at dealing with situations that can be very complicated, and you might respond in the wrong way. The learning experience, mindfulness will help put you in a position where you're able to not only approach the situation with the best intent, but also learn the most from it, see what you did wrong because of your mindfulness, because of your your uh, proximity and your your connection with the reality. How do we deal with ignorance and delusions? Ignorance and delusions are like cloudiness and darkness. Mindfulness is like a light. When you use mindfulness, the delusion is just not there. So do your best to cultivate mindfulness where you're present and aware and facing things just as they are. You won't even ever see delusion or ignorance. They just can't exist with the light. Do you have any advice for grandparents pushing their religious beliefs on you? Should I explain to them that I am Buddhist, even if it might upset them? They're very old, so I don't want to upset them. Well, doing things to upset people is something you have to be very careful about. So it's a simple, simple uh, equation. If it's something that is helpful and truthful and, and uh, well-received, then of course do it all the time. If it's not helpful, never do it no matter whether it's well-received or not. And if it's not true, never do it, no matter whether it's well-received or helpful. But if it's helpful and true, truthful, uh, then, well, you have to know when it's going to be. You have to know the right time and be careful about it, but, and have to know that it's helpful. So that's the real missing link, missing part here. Is it going to help them? Hard to say, right? How, how could you possibly know whether it's going to help them? Yeah, well, live and learn part of learning experience. I would say generally um, there's nothing wrong with engaging with people within a different religious framework. If they're not interested in what you're doing, then you can be interested in what they're interested in insofar as it dovetails with the Buddhist teaching. There are many other religions have good things about them, so find those good things and find common ground. I would say that's much more wholesome and beneficial than Try having a fight and, and losing touch with them because of your religious differences. I mean, it's a good stepping stone anyway. Once you find and get them, because the key is get them in a direction that's more wholesome. Mostly other religions are unwholesome because they deal with wrong views and, you know, just really wrong ideas. So try and help them get in a direction that is more wholesome and not pay so much attention to those unwholesome things like needing to believe in a deity or so on. How can one deal with doubts and uncertainty about Buddhism and the practice? Is this a consequence of my own ignorance? Is there even a goal to achieve? Well, doubt and uncertainty about anything is a disturbing state, stressful, unwholesome, uh, a cause for cloudiness and a cause for for irrationality. You know, when you have doubts, you're more you're more likely to make a bad decision. So get rid of the doubt. Note the doubting. Say doubting, doubting, and that sets your mind in a more clear state where you can see this thing that you're doubting more clearly. I mean, that's Buddhism, and that's really the the immediate goal to clear up the doubt in the state of mind that is uh, that is fixated on this wrestling with something. Don't wrestle with it, just try and step back and see it clearly, and then you'll see the, the different decisions, different possibilities, and you'll 
have a better ability to see which one is the right possibility. What is the right view about taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma? Sometimes the idea of safety makes me feel somehow incapable. Well, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha means practicing the Dhamma, so it's nothing about being incapable. Our refuge is not a god or a deity, our refuge is the practice. So if you're not practicing, you don't really have a refuge. So you're very much capable. and culpable. How does the experience of Nibbāna differ from the fifth stage of insight, Bhaṅgañjāna? How can one not be mistaken that they have attained Nibbāna and it is just knowledge of dissolution? Bhaṅgañjāna is not that. Bhaṅgañjāna is seeing everything cease. Bhaṅgañjāna is just where you see the cessation of things. So when the stomach rises, Normally you'll see the beginning and the end, but in Bhanganyana the mind fixates on the end, that's all. I mean, you see those things anyway, it's nothing to do with Nibbana. It also involves seeing through concept. Bhanganyana is the point where the mind, rather than seeing things conceptually, like the stomach rising or the body sitting, it only, it, it perceives more clearly what is really there. So a meditator might focus on the body to say sitting, and not be able to find the body, feeling like they're not sitting at all, they're, the body's disappeared. The truth is the body was never there, but until you got to Bhanganyan, you couldn't see that. You saw the concepts, you thought of a body sitting at Bhanganyana and higher. The meditator only sees, only observes the actual feelings and sensations that arise and cease. Not, I think you may have a misunderstanding of what Bhanganyana is. I get overwhelmed when I meditate for long enough. I can't even describe it, just a huge need to stop. I note overwhelm, but the pain of looking at attachments gets too intense for me. What do I do? Well, don't meditate quite so long, maybe, but don't be discouraged by this. I mean, it's just another experience. Become more familiar with it. Don't push yourself too hard. Try and break it up and do some in the morning, some in the evening, whatever. Do more little bit shorter sessions, not too short, a little bit shorter, but do more of them, uh, and, and slowly try to approach those sorts of feelings. Don't run away from them or shy away from them. Do what you can to face them and see them clearly. Your Brain on Porn by Gary Wilson talks about the internal effects of hormones in a human being. We can say that all addictions are due to hormonal action. Then how does meditation work for an addict? Well, it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's an intense, intense cycle, but um, what, what, what misses, what's missing out on, in all of these sorts of studies, generally speaking, is an appreciation of the the role the mind plays because they can't see the mind on their e e what are those those eegs what are those things ekg i don't remember what they're called um a cat scan or whatever i don't know whatever it is you use to see brain waves and stuff <clears throat> you can't see the mind in any of those so it appears that you know the the brain is working on its own that's all there is that's all you can see and it's not telling the whole story so the mind that sees uh, through rose-colored glasses or sees through bias, through ignorance, through delusion, that's what perpetuates the cycle. By cultivating clarity of mind, the, the hormones don't trigger states of desire in the mind. Even though there might be pleasurable states physically, the mind doesn't attach to those states. So. A big part of addiction is going to be focusing on those pleasurable states, but it's also going to be focusing on the mental desire. It's also going to be focusing on objects that trigger the desire, and it's going to be focusing on the thoughts we might have about our desire, thoughts and ideas and views and opinions and so on.
I know that having a girlfriend will inevitably cause me suffering, but I'm also getting older, so I feel like if I don't ever have a girlfriend, then I will also suffer. What would be the right thing to do? No, I, I, I disagree that you won't suffer if you don't have, or that you'll suffer if you don't have a girlfriend, so I wouldn't worry about that. The right thing, the best thing you could do is, if possible, don't have a girlfriend. Try and just deal with your desires and so on. Try and have good friends, people who are practicing. But that's hard for most people. If you do get a girlfriend, just make sure, just make sure all the people you associate yourself with in any in any form, in any capacity, are on the right path, are good people. That's the most important. Associate yourself with good people. Is it okay to accept everything exactly as it is? Reality seems to allow for all things, including the deepest ignorance and the greatest of all evils. Do we simply allow space for this infinitude? Well, we don't forbid things. So it's just the word allow is misleading because it implies a sort of complacency of not doing anything about. But we do do something about everything, really. Is we try to be mindful of it. So rather than say accept, it's not really a word that we use. We use try to see clearly. Don't worry about accepting or rejecting. Just look at seeing clearly. The mind will do the accepting and rejecting itself. And honestly, the only things that the mind really accepts are good things. So no, the mind will reject things like ignorance, but that'll happen by itself. We try and see clearly the rejection and the acceptance happens through as a result. How to deal with anxiety disorder associated with low self-esteem? Anxiety is a tough one, but for meditation it actually is simplified quite a bit because you're able to dissect it. Anxiety involves often concepts, the idea of a panic attack. and For example, you say anxiety disorder. It's those kind of words that tend to reify things. If you're not familiar with this word reify, it's a good word. Reify means make something into an entity. So we reify the thing, and then how do you fix It's atomic. The word atom is something that is indivisible. But even the atom we know is not an atom, it's divisible. And these, these conditions are also divisible. They're divisible into moments of experience. And if you can break those up into moments of experience and parts of experience, like the physical part, the tension in the body and so on, and the mental part, the emotion, the anxiety, and also the thoughts that make you anxious and mental imagery and so on, if you break it up, you'll start to see there actually isn't a problem there. The problem was something we fabricated. We fabricated. It only became a problem when we turned it into a conceptual thing that was a monster or a boogeyman. My parents fight a lot, and I try to be patient and loving toward them, but they have a tense relationship with each other. I do not like the environment in my house. Should I just leave? No, you can help your parents a lot if you're mindful and calm. I do not like the environment. The problem is the disliking. If you get rid of that disliking, you'll help the environment a lot. Injecting your disliking into it is a big part of the problem. You can really do good things for your parents without having to fix them. You just inject some peace into the situation. It'll help them both. Be patient. You can really change things. That's a good a good spot for you to work. You're in, a, you're in a good situation to do some good work. Change the world for the better. Don't, I mean, without expectations. I'm not saying miracles will happen, but... Small miracles will happen if you're patient, mindful. You'll see the miracles, and I hope someday you'll tell me about them. I, I don't really hope. I mean, it would be I would be happy to hear if you someday told me about them. I could tell it as a story to other people then. Success story.
There are no expectations. Okay. No pressure on you. Dante, we've crossed the hour. Tier okay. one questions have all been asked. Okay, thank you all. Looks like we got still lots more questions, so or we have still more questions coming in. I have to wait till next week. Thank you all. Thank you, Chris and Ulu and uh, Jim. Your help. If anyone else wants to help volunteer, we sometimes need backup volunteers. Maybe there's someone in our community who would like to help organize questions. Uh, and let us know. All the best, everyone. Sad. Sad.